Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Psychology, a channel on the New Books Network. I am Yakir Englander. Today, we will be talking to Professor Brad Lewis, the author of Narrative Psychiatry, How Stories Can Shape Clinical Practice. In his book, Brad makes a challenging and compelling case that psychiatrists need to promote the significance of narrative in their, in their practice. Professor Lewis is an associate professor of medical humanities and cultural studies at New York University Gallatin School of Individualized Study with affiliated appointment in the Department of Psychiatry and the Center for Bioethics. Brett, welcome. Um, my first question to you is, can you elaborate us a little bit more about the two, um, about narrative studies and psychiatry? Um, what brings them together in um, in your work, and also what made you to write this book? Well, thank you, Yukir. Um, I'm, I'm happy to be here. Um, I, um, well, I, I maybe to tell stories is the easiest way. Um, I uh, trained in psychiatry in the 1980s, um, and that was a period where um, the um, psychiatry was shifting from a very psychoanalytic worldview uh, to a much more biological, bio-psychiatric uh, worldview, uh, shift from talk therapy to medication therapy. Um, and my clinical training would, would be really to go back and forth between uh, lectures on psychopharmacology and brain science and lectures on dreams and unconscious conflicts um, and um, about, you know, historical trauma. And um, I really came to, to sort of question how does this all fit together? Because it, it really wasn't, it wasn't integrated. It was just sort of two separate tracks that were happening simultaneously. And that got me going into, um, when I became a faculty member in the psychiatry department, that got me headed over to the philosophy department to start taking classes in the humanities and it turns out that there's just a whole rich world of trying to understand, you know, the relationship between mind, what we hope for, what we dream about, and body, our brains and neurotransmitters, and culture and social um, tensions and conflicts. Um, and so I went back and did a PhD in human sciences, um, which is just basically humanities, <clears throat> excuse me, um, interdisciplinary. And I, ever since then, I've been cross-talking. And so this book is about, you know, when we go to see a clinician for emotional troubles um, or emotional differences or cognitive differences, um, we're um, entering in a storytelling process. And we're not necessarily aware that we may think we're just trying to fix a problem, but actually we're um, embarked on a project of trying to understand you know, the past, the present, the future, 
Uh, we're choosing metaphors for which to frame how to think about it. We're developing our identity, our sense of character, um, who we talk to about this will have a very particular point of view, and that point of view will shape the ways that we make sense of it. Um, so really just trying to sort of foreground this um, storytelling dimension of trying to understand ourselves and our differences and our suffering. So before we will go to into the personal um, place of storytelling in psychiatry, I, I wonder if we can, um, the first chapters you, you deal also with the storytelling of them, of science and the storytelling of, um, um, the storytelling of what does it mean to help? And I, I, I love this um, first chapters and I'm thinking about the work of Michel Foucault and his claim that from the 17th century, we see a change when um, religion and faith um, reduce and fall apart, slowly we have a new religion or a new method, which is about truth. And then science come um, more important. And the question of what serious is, what is the truth, what do we try to do, and the place of science. And, and, and then come, as, as I understand from the book, then come also what is real help or what is scientific um, help which will be more as a medical element, as a biological element. Um, and then what's the other things that we can offer as um, but is it serious enough? Like is psychoanalytic is, is serious enough? But then we come to question of psychiatry and the question of what does it mean to invite our identity, our mentality and identity to the laboratory and how do we do it? And is and are pills the right way how to fix the problem? Or maybe the problem is not exactly a problem because it's not about math, it's about something else. So can you tell us this story? How do you see it? Um and and, and one more thing, um, and it's so interesting, you you mention in the book that the medical insurance and the medical institutes in America is rely historically on science. So please, please elaborate for us. Well, yeah, that, that, that's a nice sort of description of a lot of the backstory of the book. A book that I did just before this was on what I was calling post-psychiatry. Um, and I wasn't alone in that. Um, a couple of British, um, sort of philosophical psychiatrist had also written a book. Um, Brackett and Thomas had written a book on post-psychiatry that came out at exactly the same time. And, and it was part of a sort of a, an interest of bringing a lot of postmodern theory into our understanding of the clinical uh, practice as well. And Foucault certainly front and center of that. And, and what Foucault did, um, he's a French philosopher, historian, um, who actually started out um, <clears throat> in psychology and was actually motivated um, by his own um, sort of emotional difference um, and the way in which uh, his sexuality um, was a sexuality that was very pathologized. Uh, his father was a doctor. His grandfather was a doctor. His father on his mother's side was a doctor. <laughs> like his whole family of doctors, and they, he's you know, he was having. <laughs> 
yeah. problems with his, his uh, sexuality and uh, got depressed, got suicidal, got sent to a therapist. Um, and of course, we don't know exactly what happened, but, but most likely it was pathologized. I mean, what's interesting is Foucault was arguably one of the most important thinkers of the 20th century. So usually when it's one person against the whole field of psychiatry that says you're pathological, it's not a fair fight. But in the case of Foucault... <laughs> <laughs> which is fascinating because Michel Foucault, right? Because he did it in so many fields, Brad, right? I mean, yeah. he did it in psychiatry, right. which he was trained, but then he did it the same in religion, I mean, and with sexuality and in geography. But as you say, like, we have so much debate about is Foucault right or not right, as if. You know, it's like, as, as you said, it's a duel of one person against a whole institute. But I mean, what what he yeah. what he when he you know he didn't he didn't he wasn't the kind of person that would come head on on it. He said, okay, let's let's think about this in a more displaced form. Let's look at the history of how we've talked about mental difference. Um, so he did a book on what was called the history of madness and madness. <clears throat> a nice term in a way. It's a little hard to get your mind around. But it's uh, what's nice about it is it's nowhere near as pinned down as a term like mental illness or certainly brain disorder or diagnosis. It's a it's an open term. It's a fluid term, and it also has this uh, conflicted valence: is madness a good thing or is madness a bad thing? You know, there's the madness of genius, but there's also the madness run amok. And so it's a it's a and so he did this history of madness and, and looked at the way in which Western culture across time has had a variety of different ways of understanding mental difference. Um, and and he, he displaced the truth question. He didn't ask the standard modernist question, who is right or what is true? He asked, what is the discursive practice? What, what, so what is the linguistic organization of meaning that gets into how we live, right? So, so if I think of myself in, in contemporary times, if I think of myself as having um, a broken brain or a chemical imbalance, or if I think of myself as having childhood traumas and unresolved griefs, or if I think of myself as having cognitive distortions, or if I think of myself as a victim of patriarchy run amok who wouldn't be unhappy, or if I think of myself as yearning for a kind of spiritual consciousness that the ordinary secular world doesn't have, all these different ways of telling stories of my difference, telling stories of my suffering, he didn't ask which one is true. He asked, what was the lived experience? What way of life would be organized by living that way? So that you can begin to have this more comparative understanding of different languages of mental difference um, and, and, and begin to then open up, how do you want to live? Who do you want to be? Um, what language works well for you? So, so he, yeah, please. Well, the book then moves from that postmodern language, that language of discourse, that language of Foucault to a much more narrative language uh, the new book, the narrative psychiatry book, is much more of a narrative language, which, which gets you out of these large structures of language and meaning and power, and gets you back to these much more personal stories 
about how do I tell the story of my own particular uh, life and the and the challenges of my life uh, brings it much more into this fine grained singular um, aspect of personal choice about who do I who I want to be. Yeah, and 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 thank you for doing that in the book because I was at the beginning I was worried that you will stay more on the Derrida area, which is which is very important, but it focuses more on the language and and what reality is, and you you make it you bring it to the reality of life, like as a person who works with other people, and I loved it. And I want to focus, um, but I want to to stay a little bit in the, er- the the between area. And you speak about phenomenology and about phenomenology that we will not come to all details, but the fact the truth cannot ignore after Immanuel Kant, it cannot ignore or it must start with experience, right? As experience as the source for definition. Um, and and you 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 mention and I don't know if you did you create this term or you you quote others um, the beautiful two words wounded humanity um, and 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 I love this term and and I will tell you why because what you tell us that there is a wound and there is a wound as part of being humans. But also there is a very practical wound, which means that when someone suffers biologically or mentally or, um, you know, medically, we need to think about the crisis that the person is having with their body, with their mentality in uh, this case, but also with the community that the people are living with. And the need, and this is something that um, I, I, I read it in your book, and I was immediately thinking about um, Marlowe Ponty and his work, and the need to understand that your reality is changing. Like a person, right? That a person, you need to accept the change in your life. And you say, and you claim, if I understand, that part of the work of the therapist, of the psychiatrist, is to help in this process. Um, can you can you go us and help me a little bit more to understand? Sure. Um, yeah. So I agree. Phenomenology is a is a really valuable uh, way in, and um, you know, so going back at the turn of the last century, the nineteenth into twentieth century. Edmund Husserl, you know, started looking at um, the sort of last 200 years of enlightenment and sort of the the privileging of science and the privileging of evidence and the privileging of empirical research as the best way to know the world. Um, And it had been so successful in terms of manipulating and uh, predicting and explaining the world uh, that increasingly the um, the natural sciences were being applied to uh, ourselves, um, and 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 Husserl was one of the the powerful voices that said, you know that 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 there's something different about humans that we want to know that can't be explained by natural science. There's there's something there's a feeling that it is to be a human. 
Um, there's a, a meaning. Um, we 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 are 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 uh, the contents of our minds have meaning. Um, they there's there's this sense of free will that we have that doesn't that doesn't make sense in a mechanistic world. Um, so that 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 to understand humans, um, we have to not only understand their bodies and the causal deterministic impacts on their bodies. We have to understand how they make meaning. We have to understand what kind of choices they make. We have to understand our inner world of experience. And, and he called that we need to turn back. He called it the things in themselves, but it, it, to turn back to the mind in itself. It, because a culture that only looks at the objective world and doesn't look back at the a subjective world gets increasingly stupid about the subjective world. I mean, that's, and, and then he felt like that the crisis of the 20th century that was about to emerge um, can be explained by that. So it's, it's much bigger than, than, than right. mental health and psychiatry. It's about, you know, Western culture's understanding of itself and how we've delegitimized relative to science, these other languages of self-understanding. And, and, and yeah, so that, you know, psychiatry avoided that a little bit because Freud, um, even though he hated philosophy and said he was a scientist, he was turning back to the mind too. And so he was saying, let's understand the contents of our human experience and, and, and even our unconscious human experience. Um, and so there was, uh, even though it didn't call itself phenomenology and it thought it was doing science, there was a kind of study of human experience going on in psychiatry up until around 1980 when that got killed. Um, and it became, you know, very much evidence and science and medications uh, as sort of the, the dominant way that we understood ourselves. Mm. And, the, and the wounded humanity then gets oh. lost, right? So yeah. Edmund Pellegrino, that, that, that term comes from Edmund Pellegrino, who was one of the um, mm. early founders of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of what we now call medical humanities or health humanities, trying to say that, you know, science isn't enough for medicine, um, certainly in terms of ethics, in terms of like, when do we decide that life is over? Um, science won't tell you that. When do we decide that life begins? Science won't tell you that. We have to have the human dimension to make choices. But Pellegrino thought even more than that, to understand the experience of what's lost in illness and, and how to heal ourselves, um, science alone, because a you don't require a perfect body or a body without impairment to live a good life, right? And so science alone isn't going to be the way to heal uh, from impairments. Um, so that's where he starts, mm. you know, he, this is back in the 60s, really, um, but has continued to this day to grow and grow to, to sort of be a kind of additional voice that says that the clinical world needs help from the arts and humanities. Mm -hmm. And then we come to, I, I want to take us to the next step before we will go inside inside the narratives. Um, one more thing that you claim in the book um, is that in a way, research shows that it doesn't matter so much which kind of therapy you do. What is important is the um, relationship, um, right? Tell us more. It, it was so surprising. <laughs> it's also surprising that it's surprising. I mean, that's that's part of the curiosity of it. 
Um, <clears throat> I mean, so but, I've been but saying, then, but then it means, but but then where do we go? It's like, is it true in general, or you can you say that in specific challenges of life, diff, specific methods helps more, or even there you cannot go there? And and also, what's the limit? Because um, in a way, it scares me. I mean, we. So many people today take pills, like um, they, they, we, we go to, to medicine. And then the questions that I was asking all over the book, all over the book, is as a, as a psychiatry, psychiatrist, when is the moment that you decide to tell a person take a pill? And when are the moments that you tell them, you know what, let's wait with that? Um, so these are two mm-hmm. questions before we will dive into mm-hmm. the narratives. I got so interested in that last one. I forgot the one before. What was the one earlier? Yeah, the, the one, <laughs> of course. Of course. The, the one before was about your claim um, oh, yeah, 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 uh, that yeah, yeah, research yeah. shows that <laughs> right. it doesn't matter right, right, which right. method. <laughs> right, yeah, right, of course, right, of course. Right. <laughs> I mean, each question is so, it's so interesting in this field. Well, yeah. So we've been talking all along about science Um and the limits of science and the need to open up to the arts and humanities, which would include, you know, politics and religious studies. Um, but that's not meant to be anti-science at all. In fact, I like more and more this word scientism um, that people are using to talk about when people overvalorize science or try to ask science to do things that it's really not um, best at doing. Um, scientism is talking about uh, where science needs meets its limits, not where science is bad. Not not that science is bad, and and there's a you know there's there's a, one of the places where science has asked interesting questions is which psychotherapy is most effective, and and that kind of question uh, lends itself to a scientific research, um, and there's decades of work now that uh, when they study different psychotherapy approaches, different paradigms, what they find is it's not the paradigm itself that makes the difference, whether it's psychoanalysis or humanistic or cognitive behavioral um, or feminist, what, 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 what matters, or spiritual, what, what matters is the nonspecific qualities of the therapist. Are they good listeners? Are they able to be present? Um, do they understand? Uh, do they care? Um, are they thoughtful? Do they have your best interest at heart? And most important, do you feel a sense of rapport with them? Do you feel like you're on the same team with them? Mm-hmm. If you've got those things, then um, that, and they would say, even tried to calculate how much they, they come up with a number. And I don't think it's like hard and fast or anything, but it, that's 85% of it, you know? Wow. It's a little bit like Woody Allen, you know, like 85% of the job is showing up. I mean, only it's not just showing up. It's like, you know, actually being a good human being, really, with a lot of nonspecific human skills. Mm. Um, and that the, there's only the, the, the 15% is the method. And, and so, so the, the, these therapy wars over different methods um, are just that. They're, they're sort of brand wars in a lot of ways. Um, and, um, what I, what the narrative does is it says, okay, let's take that seriously, um, and look at, so there's a variety of ways that we can tell the story of our suffering and our difference. Let's don't go in with a predetermined story. 
let's work with the person to discover together um, which story is right. And, and then that gets back to your second question, which is, when do you start to tell people, you know, you, you really need to take, say, medication or you really need um, this or that approach? And, you know, a narrative shifts that from, from not so much what is true or who is right, but um, what would it mean to live different approaches? What, would it, what does it mean to live in the experience of taking medication, um, for example? Um, and, and who gets to decide, right? And, and, and it, it, so it shifts it to the ethical question, who gets to decide? And it shifts it to the practice question of, of what's the experience of living that way? I mean, there's a really nice uh, example of an artist who uh, the, the data, everything says that lithium would help their moods, but it shifts the way that they experience color. And for that artist, I cared more about color than they did about the stability of their mood. So it's, it's, it's a, it, that becomes, it's not like even, even the truth, all the truth was on the side of taking the medication, but the lived experience and the values um, were not. And so, so those become kind of much more central questions. Mm, thank you. So, so now I want to shift into narratives. Um, and I wonder, one of the challenges that we, that, um, we find in, um, in, with mental illness or mental challenges um, is the question of what is my narrative, right? I'm thinking <clears throat> about like the simple example, you go to sleep happy and then you, but you still wake up with, with anxious and you don't remember that something radical happened in your dream during the night. Um, and, and, and I wonder, there is something that, can you elaborate for us about when we say narrative, we're so used to very clear narrative about the hero who has a journey, mm -hmm. but I guess that it's much more with fractions. It's much more divided. And I wonder, maybe we need to speak about um, narratives and mm -hmm. how, do we, how do you hold it in psychiatry? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a really rich question. Uh, so, so much there. I mean, the first part, like, I feel suffering, um, but it doesn't seem to have any meaning associated with it. It just seems to come out of the blue. I feel panic. I feel anxious. I feel depressed. It seems like, it seems like there's just no meaning to it. Um, I guess one of the things that narrative would do would be to say that 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 is a story, right? The, the story of no story, the story of, of lack of meaning um, is a story. And, um, and then so the question is not so much, is it right or is it true? But what's the, how, how would that organize a life? If I make sense of my suffering as being senseless, as having no human meaning to it, um, what would that, what, what would the lived experience of, of putting that narrative into my life be? And is that what I want? And, and one of the things that's, 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 that's interesting about that is that that, that story, that story of no story, um, fits very well with a biochemical story, right? So then the, the, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not suffering because of any human meaning 
I'm suffering because of so, some kind of a broken brain or broken chemical imbalance, right? And that it's just, it's, it's just the chemical imbalance, but that, that's a story, right? And that story means going to see psychiatrists and taking medications and looking yeah. to see, am I suffering less or am I suffering more or am I having side effects? So it, 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 it's, it's, it, that would, I wouldn't see that from a narrative point of view as, as, as a non-story. It's a story of a non-story. And that gets you into a particular way of life for a lot of people, which is a, a biological approach to um, their, themselves. Um, and for many people, that's beautiful. They like it and it works and they're happy with it. But, um, I mean, there's a whole website now called Mad in America, where it's just, there's lots of people that are just really unhappy with reducing ourselves to only our biological variables. And so for the people that are not happy with that, then the narrative would encourage them to keep looking to see if we can understand this, the easy, you know, with deeper, deeper reflection that we couldn't understand it at first. So is your claim is that we need to bring more narrative into the process of like in the healing process? Um, well, it's who gets to decide. And who gets to decide. I, this yes. is a chemical imbalance. I don't want to talk about these stupid narratives. What medication would work? Um, I've used medication before. It's been helpful. Let, let you know, let's get to it. <laughs> Yes. Then, 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 yeah. That, that do they need more narrative? Not, not if they don't want it and it's working for them and they're happy with it. Um, but if they're not happy with it, um, then um, because additional it's never, or different narratives. Because Pardon? it's never a perfect, a, a perfect um, <laughs> journey, right? I mean, the pills doesn't make one just to feel great, but. As, as we started with the phenomenology and the wounded, like we, we need to go and understand the atmosphere where the person live and which kind of life they understand, how they approach life with this pain that they suffer. I, I just think, I, I think you have to go even a little slower than that. I, I, I think some people thrive under a biological I, so any story that we tell is a partial story. It's impossible to tell a story that brings in all the complexities of how we got to be who we got to be. Right. So it, it really isn't an option between a partial story and a whole story. It's really, a, which partial story do I like? Even if I try to tell a bio, psycho, social, spiritual story, that's a selection out of a, out of a set of variables. And, and, and which aspects of bio, psycho, social, spiritual do I bring in? So that it's, it's, it becomes, it's not, a, it's not like there's a, a, a partial story that's incomplete versus a, you know, a, a full story that's complete. It's, 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 it's which partial incomplete story is, is, is the best for, mm. for you, right? I mean, um, yes. And, and they, may, they may bring in different variables, but like a, a very narrow bioscience story uh, can be full of variables. I mean, I don't know if you've just looked at a neuroscience textbook lately, but, they, you know, they're, 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 they're thousands of pages. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's a really thick story, you know? Yes. Um, yeah. So I, w I want to 
I want if you can, um, if we can talk a little bit more about um, the, the narrative of the person, but a person is never alone, right? I mean, this is part of mm. being part of a community. I'm thinking mm. about um, even the change that, at least in, in Western society, let's speak even in America here. I mean, we have in the past 70 years, you change towards religion. And I'm thinking about mm. a book by um, Hélène de Botton, um, mm. Atheism 2.0, who speaks about that when people became atheists and we said like no to religion, we mm. forgot that by doing that, we also said no to other things that mm. the religious community provided us, but it's mm. not collected to God at all, like mm. community, like a narrative. Mm. And, and I wonder if we can, if, if from your work, if you can see that Western society or secular Western society struggle with what does it mean to create a narrative and a meaningful narrative? Um, <laughs> and also which kind of narratives, well, right? Uh, when, and maybe yeah. I'm sorry to, to add one more a level for that, but I'm thinking also mm. like um, about today, about questions of um, how a white person, for example, which kind of narrative mm. you need to create with your community when you think about your ancestors and you said like, hmm, do I really want to invite them to my narrative or I need to create a new narrative, <laughs> right? Um, can you help us to think about the place of community <laughs> in the narrative? <laughs> well, Alain de Bouton is interesting. I mean, I, I think that... Uh, you know, one of the things that, that he's done in addition to writing a bunch of books is to sort of bring an entrepreneurial mind to the way in which arts, humanities, religion um, uh, are, can be valuable in living a good life. And so setting up a whole school of life where we look again at um, arts, humanities, um, religion again um, for... Um, the, the kinds of um, human solace and meaning um, and potential that they have. And, 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 and it, it, I think it's a really interesting to take, to take a, a very entrepreneurial approach to that. And, and, and it seems to be a growing community. They're happening all over the globe. I went to one of his conferences here in New York and it was sold out and there's 500 people there and they were all sitting on the edge of their chairs. And so there's a, there's a need for that. Um, but I do think that, um, yeah, that, that any story that we tell isn't told in a vacuum, right? So we're not telling stories all by ourselves. We're using the cultural models and the cultural frames um, that are surrounding us. And many of them have history and tradition associated with them. And sometimes they'll come from a religious history or tradition. Uh, sometimes they'll come from a secular religious history or tradition. Um, and so... To, to tell a story is, a, is about joining a story community in a lot of ways um, so that you're, you're not doing it all by yourself. You're making choices about which storied community do I want to be possible, be part of. And so even if I choose a chemical imbalance story, that putting me in a community of professionals and experts and people with white coats and pharmacists, um, and, 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 and perhaps um, education groups, you know, 
Um, if I tell a more spiritual story, then that's putting me in connection with a much more spiritual community of some kind. Um, if I tell a psychoanalytic story, that's putting me in community with a bunch of people in tweed jackets and, um, you know, sort of, uh, <laughs> um, sort of swanky offices. And, um, <laughs> so that I think you're absolutely right. And, 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 and yeah, a lot of, a lot of, um, the stories of our suffering. I mean, that, that's, what, that's what was really tickled me about the book is the stories of the suffering that, that were most interesting to me were the ones that, that, that I'll use the William James terms, cashed out um, in terms of arts or spirituality or politics. So if, if I'm suffering and I decide that it's racism run amok, then I, that can put me in community with Black Lives Matter, right? And that... I, that's very different than if I decide I have a chemical imbalance or if I decide that um, this yearning and sensitivity for a deeper sort of higher consciousness uh, resonates with some people I met um, at the synagogue or at the Zen center, then that begins to put me in uh, that kind of community as well. Um, so I think you're absolutely right that these are not, Stories are not about individuals, really. They're about joining story communities. Um, mm -hmm. And that's part of how you decide which story is your preferred story, is what community does it put you in? And, 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 and some people, th those are actually aesthetic questions. They're temperament questions. They're, you know, access, access questions. There are all kinds of things that can go into that, that, um, that help you make decisions about which story um, is preferred for you. So it changed. So when I'm when I was reading your book, I also learned that as a reader, mm. not as a as a psychiatrist or mm. as a as a therapist, but as a reader, mm. it changed the responsibility of of my. It's like changing my role. It's that it changes. Mm -hmm. That if we are so used, you know, in a partner dancing about someone who leads and someone who is led, nice. and the psychiatric is the leader, and it's so clear, and I can almost rely on them. I can come to you and say, like, please fix me because I suffer. What you tell us, and I wonder to whom you wrote your book, you tell us or you tell your colleagues. Mm. Um, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> you, you, you sometimes, I cannot lead you unless you really dance with me. And, and I, love, I love the partnership, uh, partner dance, because we know in partner dance that the leader never totally lead. And the one who is led is never totally led. They give, they give they, there is a communication, there is a story between them. And in a way, you tell us, we cannot ignore that. We don't come mm -hmm. to be fixed. Mm -hmm. is, is it the right way to tell this story? Absolutely, absolutely. And, 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 and yeah, the book, um, you know, really is meant to empower um, people as much as it's meant to um, speak to clinicians. Um, although the, the audience is more specifically to clinicians. I, I did write another one called Depression, Integrating Science, Humanities, and Culture, 
which is um, directed more towards the lay reader, towards the, the early college student, um, which is really about empowering um, people to understand, you know, that this is about storytelling, to this is about empowering agency to make choices. This is about being able to fire people that if they're not working for you or to leave the clinical frame altogether to find other communities um, that are telling stories that work better for you. It does put another kind of responsibility. I, I think that's one of the appeals of some of the more medical models. This is a, you're a patient, you're passive, it's just done to, to you. And, and that's an appeal to that story. And some people would prefer to stay in a, in a patient passive way. And um, if they seek out biomedical models, they'll, they'll, they'll tend to get that more. Um, but um, it, um, it, 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 it is a choice, really. It's a choice about who, who do I want to be and making choices about how I want to tend to my suffering or my differences are about choices of who I want to be. And, and, and I think it helps to be empowered to that. Mm. So last question, Brad. Yep. Um, one of the things that today we speak a lot, and I think people come back to or, or re-come back in a new way, is the place of the body. Mm. It means that the body, like sensory motor therapy, um, um, I think about um, post-trauma from military and the use of mm. the body as a place where my story is, right? I mean, my story is not only, I mean... Um, I just heard an incredible interview with um, a therapist who said that if you speak with people who were in a war or, or even uh, people who suffer from trauma by, led by other people, don't oh. approach them from, like, give them to move in their room so they know that no one is coming to, to stabbing them, no one coming oh. to hurt them, right? Oh. And the, oh. because the body is alert and the body oh. holds also our trauma mm. um, and it's a new narrative it's like it's it's mm, a, it's mm, a narrative mm. that we we need to be attuned to that too um, mm, mm, can you give us at least mm. a glimpse to the place of the body in that yeah sure i mean i mean the i mean in some ways it's the dominant narrative of psychotherapy this this issue of trauma nowadays and and in many ways that's a really good thing because it takes us to understanding the political, social uh, dynamics of our suffering um, and to look outside of our individual, you know, conflicts and distortions and to look at um, the, the social world in which we're living and how much oppression and subordination and abuse um, and injustice are contributing to our suffering. And I think it's a lot. I think it's a whole lot. Um, and yet, and yet, and yet, and yet, um, the, if we start saying that some people have access to what the body means or what the body is saying or what the body is doing, uh, and they're trauma experts, um, and, and, and they know best about um, what trauma is, it's an embodied phenomenon, um, then... Um, uh, there's a there's a slippery slide there um, where it starts to become expert knows best right I, mm -hmm. the trauma story the story 
of repressed memories, the story, that's a story, right? And, and, and I may or may not want to bring that story, that worldview, that community, those practices into how I relate to myself and my suffering. Um, so that I think, it's, I think it's all to the good in so many ways that we're opening up that story. I think that it's dangerous if it starts to become a dominant story or if it starts to become dogmatic or it starts to feel like it has some sort of privileged access to the truth mm-hmm. of what these things are as opposed to joining in the conversation. Well, that's what, it, that's what I'm thinking. What do you think? <laughs> you know, like, let's talk here, you know? Um, sort of, that's just a very different, um, it, it, you know, meaning can be valuable, but, but, but it, it, if it becomes dogmatic or certain, then there's risk. It's so interesting because as I was reading the book I w- and I was thinking about that, I thought that if we started the journey where the therapist or the psychiatrist, they have the truth and we mm-hmm. come to be healed by them. Mm-hmm. And now when we come to questions about the body and we are learning that the body carry the trauma with us, we, should, we can replace the truth from the mm-hmm. psychiatric outside and it's becoming like the truth inside. And mm-hmm. what you tell us is don't go to another dogma, like, mm-hmm. like invite it, invite it to a dialogue. But mm-hmm. and I think it's also, um, it's so fascinating because it doesn't throw back all the responsibility to the person to listen to the truth inside themselves, but to say there is something there and mm-hmm. we needed to be a good listeners. And, mm-hmm. and I love it because in a way, and maybe we will end by that, <laughs> the narrative is not only by the storyteller, but it's also by the story listener. Nice. And it's becoming a full circle of sensitivity, well, and, right? Well, and it's not just human, or it's not just... Um... It's not just uh, human constructions, right? It, it, it does include non-human agency. So the body, right, um, oppression, um, opportunity, the economy. Um, this, this isn't just about human social construction. It's, got, it's in conversation with these other kinds of what, what they're calling in science studies now material agency. So, so humans are not the only, I mean, we, humans are the only ones that seem to have free will, but they're not the only ones that have effect on what happens next, right? And so the body has an effect on what happens next. The weather has an effect on what happens next. There's all kinds of non-human agencies that are part of what we're navigating when we're telling the story. Um, But there's still a multiplicity of how that, that can be done. Wow. Brad? Thank you so much for writing Narrative Psychiatry, How (laughs) Stories Can Shape Clinical Practice. It was a real gift to have you with us. Yeah, Kira, it's a treat. I love your questions. It's a joy to talk about it with you. Thank you.